You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Let's turn our Bibles over to the book of Acts, and we're going to be in chapter 5. That would be chapter 8. We did 5 about 5 months ago. We were flying in last night, and... um, just looking around the plane at, at people, and you know, airplanes don't put people in good moods. Just so you know, and uh, especially towards the end of the, the, the flight, there's just this. People's hair looks different. They look different. They look disheveled. No matter what you do, you know, to try and look, put your best face on. There is no best face to be found. All that, and and you see that what what. What people really are, that's what comes out of them. You see people that they just, they just it's, 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 it's been about them, so it's going to be about them. And I just was observing all of that, and it shows in, in every aspect, the lines, everything. And as I was obviously going over all of my notes and stuff for the, the teachings that were ahead of me this week, I was just kind of free reading through the book of Acts. Just sitting there and, and, and just, again, amazed at what the Holy Spirit does when he, when he grabs a hold of people's lives um, and what he does when he grabs a hold of a group. And, you know, in an airplane, they, they are a group for the sake of we're in this cylinder flying through the air together. But that's about maybe all we have in common. When you hit turbulence, I think... There's probably a common thing that happens in the plane with a lot of people. They say, oh, Lord Jesus, hold the plane together, you know, that kind of thing. They get this faith, uh, this burst of faith with, with that. But I was just reading and kind of looking around, and I was just so grateful that what has a hold of me, what has a hold of you, what has a hold of us, what brings us here today, and what we're going to look at today is the grace of God the grace of God. You know, we, we're living in a world where we're seeing people's, just, just their personal fear, their personal desires, their personal wants that just drive them and drive them and drive them. And, and that divides people apart. But the grace of God draws us together and holds us together with meaning and it doesn't matter what face you have on. It's all about what, what he's done in your heart. It's, the, it's an inside job. And, and um, this morning, that's what I want to focus on. It's just the first few verses of chapter 8. And I want to look at the life of Saul, who's about to be converted in the next chapter. Uh, but I want to spend some time understanding really who he was and what it was that God did to get his attention and how grace began to play out in his life and change him from Saul to what we know more as the man, the Apostle Paul. So in verse 1, now Saul was consenting to his death, referring to the death of Stephen that we saw in chapter 7. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria 
except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Paul, he, or Saul, excuse me, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, if you've been following our studies through the book of Acts, we have tried to almost start, yeah, I think we have started every study reminding ourselves of what the book of Acts is about, one way or another. And the book of Acts is the, the narrative of the birthing of the church and the development of the church. If you're new to that, we always start with like, well, whose church is it and what is the church? And in order to really understand that, we've got to look back to the, the origin of the church and we've got to look to the founder of the church and, and, and say, well, who's the founder and what did he say and what did he birth and what did he build? And so we go back to Matthew chapter 16 and we realize that Jesus is the one who said to his disciples there in Caesarea um, up north and, and, and at Caesarea Philippi, he, he says, I will build my church Amen. and the gates of hell will not prevail against that. And so in the book of Acts, we, we, we learn what Jesus said he would do. So in order to build the church, there needed to be a church. In Acts chapter 2, we saw the birthing of the church. And that, again, was just devout Jews from different regions that had come to Jerusalem to commemorate the Feast of Pentecost. And on that very day, there were the, the, the more pronounced followers of Christ, some of his family members, the, the disciples minus Judas, and other followers, a makeup of about 120 people that were in a room it was a, a room that they gathered in for a few days, about 10 days, to pray. Jesus had told them, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father. They, they did that. And it was on that day that the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they were, they were, they were completely overwhelmed by the Spirit. They began to speak in, in different tongues and different dialects. And, and there were all kinds of these other people from different devout Jews from different regions that heard that and were questioning that, thought that it's so early in the morning, are they drunk? How they get to be drunk? And, and that, of course, allowed Peter to then, or God raised up Peter then, filled him with the Holy Spirit, and now he gives what we see as the first sermon, and he, he, he preaches to these people that are all you know, curious as to what is going on, and he tells them they're not drunk. This is the redemptive plan of the Father. This is part of, of what he promised to the prophet Joel. And he preached Jesus. He tied Jesus to that prophecy. And he explained the gospel and preached his death, burial, and resurrection. And it brought people to a place of feeling convicted and crying out, what should we do? He gave the invitation, as we do in settings just like this all the time, and and said, you need to repent. And at that particular time and at that particular setting, 3,000 
individuals were at least identified by Luke as being saved. And there you might say the church was birthed. From that particular time forward, we have the development of the church. Jesus beginning to build his church. And he builds it in so many unique ways. Conversion is part of that. But as he builds you up in your faith, he builds me up in my faith. That whole process of making us more like him, the Bible calls that sanctification. He is also building the quality of his church. As he gifts you and begins to open doors for you and and begins to use you, he is also building and expanding his church. It is not about brick and mortar. It's about our God and his spirit working through his word, converting people, cleansing people, washing people, gifting people, putting people in his service, advancing and building his church. And so we, 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 we went through, of course, we're on chapter 8 now, but by the time we, we get to chapter 5, it would say that he, he was adding Believers were increasingly added to the Lord, uh, both multitudes of men and women. And we noted that that by the time you get to chapter 6, these guys who do the math, you're probably looking at a crowd in Jerusalem of about 20,000 people. So even by the time we get to chapter 8, the focal point is still on Jerusalem. It's going to change. But whenever God begins a work, we noted... Satan will be right there doing everything in his power to oppose it. And one of the tools that the enemy would use against the early church to oppose the work of God in advancing his kingdom and building his church, one of those tools to oppose would be the religious leaders, the same ones that opposed Jesus and went to Rome and said, hey, we need you to to, to put this guy on a cross, and, and, and they did. Those same religious leaders would oppose the followers of Christ. In chapter 5, the church was accused of filling all of Jerusalem with their new doctrine. By that time, twice, we would see the leaders in the church being opposed physically by the religious leaders. And when we talk about the religious leaders again, it's the hierarchy of Judaism. In Acts 5, verse 40, they were beaten. They were strictly warned not to speak in the name of Jesus. Then we get to chapter 7, and it got, it got worse. Word got to these religious leaders that there was a young man by the name of Stephen, and he was doing mighty works in the name of Jesus. And you remember, remember back in chapter 6, Stephen was one of seven young men that were chosen to simply serve tables. There was a problem in the early church where these Hellenist widows, uh, Greek-speaking Jews that were now converted, they were part of the the body, it was a diverse group, and they they just felt like, you know, as, as the distribution was happening, that their widows were being neglected, and they brought that to the attention of the apostles, of course, and the leadership said, you know, why don't you pick out some of your own? Find, you know, 
your, from your, your Hellenist, your Greek-speaking converted Jews now. We're all Christians. Find seven of your own, but just make sure <clears throat> that they have a good reputation, that they are full of the Holy Spirit, that they are full of wisdom, full of faith and power. And it, it, it would say of Stephen that he was just that, and that, that, that he was a, a man of a, that had a great reputation, that he was full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith and power. And he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, now you would look around and you might see the, the miracles that he was doing, seeing the changed lives and, and the joy that comes upon a person when God's grace becomes reality and they've been changed and they're following Christ. You would think that the that anybody would applaud that and be excited about that, but not these religious leaders. <clears throat> As it was the case with Jesus, they, they would have to bring in, you know, some false charges. So they found some individuals that would make up false accusations. And they would bring them before the, the high priest. And they would say, this guy is speaking blasphemous things against Moses and against God. And, and, and as, you know... Stephen would be brought right before him and he would be asked by the high priest, are these things so? And in our last time together, we went through Stephen's address. The guy had a great ministry serving tables, but now he had this amazing platform in front of the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. And he stood there with the heavenly glow and he gave that Old Testament survey that we went through in our last study, beginning with the life of Abraham all the way to Solomon, to show this pattern of how their fathers had rejected God's message in each generation and rejected the messengers. He said, your fathers persecuted every true prophet. They killed those who prophesied of the, of the coming Messiah. Then Stephen accused them of doing the same thing. As, as they have done, you are doing. But you're even worse because you guys didn't just put away those that talked about the Messiah, but you did more than that. You actually killed, you actually murdered the Messiah. And when those Jewish leaders heard that, they lost it. They were cut to the heart. They, they, they gnashed at, at their teeth, with their teeth. But then it says of Stephen sitting there with these guys just ready to take him out. But he being full of the Holy Spirit. You guys remember, he gazed up into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And said, look. I see the heavens opening up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And, and, and you know, when we taught that, I, I, I think we were all a bit moved, man, because I just brought the, the perspective of every time we see Jesus in heaven following his ascension, he's, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But to, to receive the first martyr, he's standing. That, that moves us. But they cried out with a loud voice and, and, and stopped their ears and they ran at him and they cast him out of the city and, and they stoned him. And the witnesses, and this is where we begin to see the life of Saul come into the picture, they laid their clothes at the feet 
of a young man named Saul. In other words, who's the authority within these Jewish leaders that had the power to concede to stoning this young man, Stephen? Well, it would be whoever, you take off your outer garment to pick up stones and throw them, you would lay them at that person's feet. And that was Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, don't, don't charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We might read all of this and say, again, you know, hold on. Didn't Jesus say he would build his church? Didn't Jesus tell his disciples in chapter 1, verse 8, that they would be witnesses for him? Now that they're filled with the Holy Spirit, beginning in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and, and even into the uttermost parts of the world? How could this possibly fulfill these promises that Jesus made? How are you going to spread the gospel message if this is happening to the messengers. Well, as we read here in verse 4, therefore those who were scattered because of the persecution, they went everywhere preaching the word. God knows in each generation that there's a lost world that needs to hear the good news of his son. God knows that. He's very aware of that in our generation. And he is very aware of the, the spiritual plight of each generation. And God knows what it will take to get the messengers to move forward with the message that that lost person, those lost people need in each generation. Most of us would read this account of Stephen in the early church being persecuted and say, this seems a bit drastic. And, and it is. And that's the conclusion that most of us would, would land on. But what would it take to move you or me out of our comfort zone as Christians to take the gospel message right now to a different region that needs it? I would say most likely it would take something drastic. What if God just left this to the apostles? We really don't know what plan they would have come up with. We see God's plan, persecution, that will drive them out. But what if he had he just left it to the apostles? If they were like some of the church leaders or church committees Today, they would not go out until there was a clear enough business plan that all of them voted on and agreed on, and then we would go out. There would need to be some fundraising. There would need to be some PowerPoint presentations. There would need to be definitely some missionary letters that are sent out to make sure everybody was behind this thing. No one would go out if it was like a lot of churches today until it made sense on paper. 
But if they would have waited until it made sense, Christianity would still be a small work in a small city called Jerusalem. But God says, I want to reach the world. There was a time and there was a way. Stephen is stoned. He's buried. The church there that the made-up church then was only in Jerusalem. And all of them were weeping. And understandably looking at each other and saying, why did this have to happen? Saul then, just it says, begins to wreak havoc on the church. Entering houses and dragging off men and women and committing them in prison. You know, sometimes we, we're sharing our faith. I found myself sharing our faith with others who don't know the origin of our faith. And, you know, it hit me the other day that oftentimes when I, I talk about, like, who Jesus is and how the church was birthed and how it moved forward and whatnot, I don't get into these details, but this is our history. This is part of, of, of how God works within his church. The persecution intensified. And Christians began to scatter from Jerusalem. And we see a lot of Christians scattering today. We do. It's the same thing happening 2,000 years later. I don't know what is causing a lot of Christians to scatter today. You, you'd have to ask them. But the one thing we, we, we understand in the early church, it was persecution. But if you looked at what they did when they actually scattered, it says that they scattered going everywhere, preaching the word of God. And so if you saw a Christian that was moving into your area and you asked them why, they would most likely share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it might not have even made sense to them. They might say, it just it got really hard to live in Jerusalem. But let me tell you about Jesus. Let me, let me, they were, they were, they, they shared the gospel. That's what they were known for. And so the message began to spread throughout Judea and Samaria, just as Jesus said it would do in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit came upon them. So you might say that they were understandably wanting to avoid persecution, that that was part of the driving force but we also know that Jesus said, look, you're going to be my witnesses and the Holy Spirit is going to have a role in this. The power behind them. As they went out, Saul trying to stomp out the flames of Christianity there in the Jerusalem church. He had no idea that the sparks of the gospel would just be just flying to every region as he tried to stomp out the work of God. And this is the first missions trip we see recorded in the book of Acts. And sobering. 
A lot of Christians today are tired and defeated. We ran into a few in, 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 in Hawaii, and many of them are frustrated because it's hard to find Bible teaching. And they are because of the pandemic and because of what's going on in the world. Hawaii just recently opened up. That's not a pitch for them, by the way, but it's a great place to go hang out for a week. But, but, but you look around, and I think you would agree that a lot of Christians, are, they're tired, and they're defeated. There's nothing more draining or defeating than living life as a Christian that is filled with or consumed with pleasing yourself. Nothing will tire you out more as a Christian than when you become entangled with the affairs of this life. Paul would tell young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one entangled in warfare, the warfare of Jesus Christ, advancing the church, the gospel, the kingdom of God. No one engaged in that, in warfare, entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. The most victorious, energetic Christians are the ones who are living this out. Now in verse 1 it says, they were all scattered except the apostles. What kept the apostles in Jerusalem? Many feel it was bravery. Remember after the, the crucifixion of Jesus, even during the arrest, the night before the arrest, Jesus even predicted as he being the shepherd would be stricken, his sheep would scatter. And of course, as he was arrested and through the trials and, and through the crucifixion, they did just, they did just that. They, they, they scattered. But they're staying this time. We are not leaving our post, even if it's going to cost us our lives. Something interesting about the courage of the disciples at this particular point. I got a bunch of people reaching out to me this week and different, just people speaking into my life and sharing scriptures and stuff. And, and one, one of the texts that I got was somebody reading through the book of Revelation and they said, I never really saw this verse in Revelation 21 this way. But at the final death, when it's kind of all done, and it's a list of those that are going into eternal damnation, hell for punishment, at the top of the list is this word cowardly. The cowardly. And I was so taken back by that, I thought... Ooh, I never really thought about it in the context of like, what is this year, 2021, <laughs> what we're going through. And I even went back and I looked at the four times I've taught through the book of Revelation. And I could see my application just a little different each time. 
And I'm not sure exactly how you would apply that word today or how you would, who you would assign that word to today as you're watching and looking at the world. But it was very sobering. There's something about the courageous one in the narrative that we're like, I want to be that person. <laughs> we watch a movie, we read a book, and there's the courageous one. When everyone else is running, when everyone else has fallen, the one who stands, the one who refuses to give it, I want to be that one. In the narrative here, I don't know. A big part of the church, it just says, they took off. Maybe they went back home. It's just getting too intense. Saul is knocking on doors. He's dragging people to prison. He's incarcerating them. He's murdering them. I wouldn't fault the person for saying, hold on, Lance, it's getting a little bit tough here in Jerusalem. I'm going to go back to, to Crete, where I'm from, but praise God, go and be everything for Jesus in Crete. And, 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 and if that's the Lord leading you, then we'll know that, and they'll know that. That's important. The church was made up of, of that. It was God's way of spreading out, out the word. And, and, and who am I to stand in front of us, anybody today that feels the Lord leading them on to another area and say, no, it's not the Lord. No, I'm not going to play the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does a great job of being the Holy Spirit. But just make sure that if it's us or anybody else that we're being led, that the Holy Spirit's in that. And that wherever you go, you are his representative, that you are, you are sharing the gospel. As you go, you are spreading the word. That's important. Amen? Amen. And then there are always going to be those that are like, I'm holding the post. I ain't going nowhere. I, you know, when, when the whole pandemic thing happened, you guys remember as we, you know, March of 2020, most of the people didn't come to church that day. And then the next day on the 16th, we all gathered and we're like, we're going to continue being the church. And, and here we are, right? We're, we're going to hold, hold the ground and continue to be the church. And what have we done? We've continued to preach the word of God. That's what we've done. We've continued to preach the word of God. And we will. I want to look at this man named Saul. We first met him in chapter 7, verse 58. As the witnesses again of Stephen's death were laying their clothes at his, at his feet. Again, the false witnesses. Those that were stoning him. Jewish court demanded that in a guilty verdict... On a capital crime, the witnesses would be the ones that would throw the first stones. So imagine those guys paid to do this. Bought off to do this. Now stoning this young man by the name of Stephen. And as you are, he's looking up to heaven and his face is starting to glow. And he's crying out to God. He's like, I see the Son of Man sitting. He's standing at the right hand of the Father. And he's crying out to God to forgive you. Those false witnesses are observing this. Saul is witnessing all of this. Consenting 
Saul had the vote. He had the authority. Saul, who we will later meet as Saul of Tarsus, and then finally the Paul, the apostle. But here he is, an, he's a, he is an opponent of the church. He is observing something as Stephen is being stoned that he'll never forget. He's seeing something he'll, he'll never quite shake. He's seeing someone model what he will become. He's seeing a young man facing certain death, not backing down in his faith, in his convictions towards his God. He's seeing a young man that is absolutely sold out, all in. He is seeing a young man who is absolutely convinced in the Son of God, Jesus, that he's the Messiah. He believes it to the core of his being to where he will not back down, even as he's being stoned. He's seeing a young man who was serving his God, telling people about his God. A young man who has now seen heaven opened up. A young man who sees the glory of God. A young man where, where, where it, right in front of Saul, he's being received up into heaven. A young man who with his last dying breath is begging God to forgive the ones that Saul knows had made false charges against him and are stoning him. Saul will never forget this. We'll get to chapter 22 and Saul will talk about his, his testimony and whatnot. And it is going to, to, to come up in the latter part of the book of Acts. No doubt Paul or Saul saw something in Stephen. He longed for most of his life as a Pharisee. But this was... This was out of his reach at this time because his religion had set Saul on, the, on, a, on a very different course. It was a work-based course. Not faith-based. Not a loving relationship with God thing. That will change soon. But that's currently not the case now. Saul now watches this and continues to wreak Havoc against the church. And the word havoc here in the Greek describes a wild animal mangling its prey. He went into houses where Christians would meet, drug them off into prison. In Acts 22, Paul tells us he had believers beaten and imprisoned. In Acts 26, he says if they renounced Christ, he would let them go. If not, would kill them. Acts 22.4, he would say, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. 
And here, even as we see in chapter 7, what he did with Stephen, we saw just how far he would go in persecuting the church. Entering households forcibly and dragging off believers. This is the religious Saul before he came to encounter Jesus. This is who he was as a religious man. Saul thought he was serving God by persecuting the church. In Galatians 1.13, he says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He was anti-Christian. He was out to put an end to Christianity. He looked at this movement as something that threatened Judaism and it just needed to, it needed to end. He did not see his actions at this point in time as being wrong. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent or overbearing man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He goes, man, my, my devotion to just my religion absolutely controlled my life. And it's good to look at Saul before his encounter with Christ because we can then, I believe, appreciate the miracle of transformation, all that more. It, it strengthens our faith in what God can do with any life. And so that passage, you could turn, I want to look at it, 1 Timothy 1, 12-14. I want to break this down just a little bit to understand what happened with this guy. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. Paul now, before or after conversion. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is the faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus or Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible to God, alone, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is sharing his personal testimony to show how the gospel plays out in the life of people who put their faith in Jesus. Paul says, I want, you to, I want you to take a look at this message. 
And, and, and the message of the gospel was always being challenged, always being attacked, always, always being the, Judy, the, the Judaizers. And there were all kinds of people opposing Paul and his message once he was converted and he was proclaiming the gospel across the Roman Empire. And one of the things he's doing here in this particular account when he's giving his testimonies, he just is like, look, look, look at the gospel, the gospel of grace, and just consider with me how it works. Look at what it produces in a life. Look at my life as an example. Look at what I was. Look at what I was formerly, before you know, Christ saved me. Before, when I was this, I was into the law and the, this work-based righteousness. Look at what I was. I was a blasphemer. One that actually slanders God. Giving his testimony before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, Paul shared how he tried to force Christians to do the same thing, to blaspheme God as well. Formerly, before I, I, I was saved by Christ, before when, when I was into the law and, and works-based righteousness, I was a persecutor. Philippians 3, 3 through 10, Paul was talking about his life before conversion. And he says how he was confident in the flesh and earned righteousness by keeping the law. And he would give his pedigree, circumcised the eighth day, uh, like the law said, born into Abraham's family line, a Hebrew of Hebrews, faithfully kept the law of Moses as a Pharisee. Then in verse 6, he would tout just how hard he worked for his salvation. He'd be like, concerning zeal. When you want to know how zealous I was for keeping the law and, and, and promoting Judaism, I persecuted the church. I relentlessly, unsparingly, and mercilessly tried to stamp out Christianity. He said, I was the model Jew when it came to keeping the law, the rituals, the ceremonies. I, I tithed as the law said. I, I prayed as the law said. I ate as the law said. I would rest and work as the law said. That's why I'm going to heaven, Paul would have told you. I've earned it. I've worked my way into right standing with God. And here's my list. Formally, before Christ saved him, he was into the law, a work-based righteousness. He was also an insolent man, an audacious man, an arrogant man, a violent man. We might say he was the bully today. You don't want to be a bully today, but he was a bully but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Paul was not saying that his acting in ignorance and unbelief had earned him mercy. No, he was saying that it did not disqualify him from receiving mercy. He actually thought that the zealous, legalistic life that he lived before conversion was right in God's eyes. But then came Paul's day of conversion on the Damascus Road. We'll get there in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. That day on the Damascus Road when Jesus would show up. That day 
Paul did not deserve mercy, is what he was saying. But he was shown mercy. He says, I obtained mercy. In the Greek, it means, I was so out there, so lost, I was persecuting the Son of God and all of his followers, just mercilessly killing and incarcerating and trying to stamp out the work of the Son of God. And the Son of God showed up and mercied me. Let that sink in. He mercied me. He met, Jesus met this lost, sinful, self-righteous, arrogant, insolent, psychophan of Judaism, and mercied him. God did not give Paul what he deserved. But it did not end there. Because salvation, it involves something more than what mercy brings into the equation. How many of you guys know we also need God's grace? That's why he says in verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. On the Damascus Road, Paul realized he was a sinner. He realized that his life efforts in keeping the law and keeping the traditions and keeping the rituals didn't produce the righteous standing with God that he thought. He realized that this work based religion left him striving for something that could never be earned and that is salvation Paul would later write in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 for by grace we are saved through faith not of works so there on the Damascus road we're going to see in chapter 9 God's grace be made known to Saul And he'll talk about that grace as being exceedingly abundant. Paul would say in Romans 5.20, where sin abounded or increased in my life, grace abounded all the more. How many of you are aware of that and are grateful for that? Amen. Amen. You would look at at Saul's life and go, whoa, man, there's a lot of mercy that's needed there. Yeah. And you look at his life, you'd say, oh, there's a lot of grace that is needed there. His need for grace was great. But the power of God's grace was greater. It was great enough. The grace of God is powerful enough to redeem the worst sinner who is willing to repent. In the New Testament, God's grace was powerful enough to reach a tax collector by the name of Matthew. 
His grace was powerful enough to touch a blind man by the name of Barnabas. His grace was powerful enough to transform an adulterous Samaritan woman. A Roman centurion. A thief on a cross next to him. The list goes on. And in Acts, grace we'll see is powerful enough to reach a man by the name of Cornelius in just a few moments, a few verses down, an Ethiopian eunuch, a Philippian jailer, Lydia and her household. In church history, his grace is powerful enough to reach, list off those that God's grace has reached. Put your name there. Throughout history, the same grace that transformed this guy, Saul, and his life from being a persecutor of the church to being the leader of the church. Just radical. That, that, that God's grace is exceedingly abundant. Powerful enough to redeem the worst sinner who is willing to repent. Saul would say, Saul of Tarsus, formerly a persecutor, an insolent man, a prideful, just bully, murderer. He was, you know, former what? But then God's grace was exceedingly abundant to make me, and what would the list be? What if you sat down tomorrow with your cup of coffee and just said, I'm going to write that out for me? Lance Cook, formerly. I'm not going to fill it in. You fill in your own. But you're like, why did all the pens come out now? That's wrong. Formally. What, what will you never forget that God's grace saved you from? Write that down. The life, the lifestyle, the life choices. But you know his grace altered you, and that's no longer you. And then you get to, you get to I get to, if we're saved, we get to say, yeah, but his grace was exceedingly abundant enough to, and now write down just who you are in Christ. Might be something cool. You have to show it to anybody. I'd like to read it if you want to. That'd be kind of cool. But just between you and God, that's a good place to go. Because his grace and his mercy, they're new every day. We need that today. All of us guys are going through a book, Why Grace Changes Everything. That's what we're going with. Studying grace right now. All the men that are in these growth groups. And last, in October, we started the book. We, we went into a chapter that that just talked about, Pastor Chuck is the author, but he was talking about 
like the extent of God's grace and the freedom that it brings. And, and it's just an amazing thing to think about the, the freedom. I mean, Paul would be able to say, look at what God's grace has freed me from. That's an amazing thing. And all of us would look at the penalty of sin right there, okay? Anybody excited about God's grace as it relates to freeing us from the penalty of sin? Amen, yeah. But the power of sin. The, the freedom that we have as the Holy Spirit now works in our life, convicting us and freeing us from all of the vices and just all of what we were before Christ. The freedom from that. Paul has his list. We have our list. And that's a, a, a great thing to think about. The freedom that we have. And when we think about those things that we've been freed from, it, 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 there, there's a scripture I was thinking, I actually was reading on the plane. It's in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where, and actually I shared this with some of our guys as we're going through this chapter, but the writer of Hebrews is talking about this Christian life of the faith now, and he's like, let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We have the freedom, so many things in our life, that some things, you know, personal freedoms that aren't necessarily sin, but we can just be weighed down with those things. They can just trip us up and impede forward progress. Because we live in the world that we live in here in America and in California. And we, we just bring stuff into our life. Not sinful in and of themselves, but so much that we're just bogged down by those. We have the freedom even to go, in Christ, you know, I don't need that. We've been freed from so much. And then the, the, we also are free to do some things that non-believers aren't free in that sense by the power of God, by the grace of God to do. We have freedom to love one another. There's something about the love that God sheds abroad in our heart. We now have freedom to love. Jesus says, and I was reading this this morning uh, in Luke 6, I say to you, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other. And from him who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you and from him who takes away your goods, don't ask him back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them. Likewise, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who, who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners 
do the same. We've been free. God's grace has freed us from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. Freedom from certain things that we're like, praise God. But also freedom to certain things. Freedom to love. Freedom to forgive. How freeing is it when you really forgive someone? Amen? That's true freedom. How about freedom to serve? In that chapter we read with all the men, we, we, we had this perspective of God where we looked at God and the infinite majesty and, and the power of God is we see in creation. And we know that in Colossians 1, Jesus created everything. And we think about the power, the power in that, just looking at the universe, and I won't bore you with all the stuff that's stuck in my mind on the size of universes and all. It's massive, okay? The, 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 the creator, he created all that, and it says in, in Colossians 1, and by him all things consist. He's the one that's holding it all together, okay? We're talking power. But what did he do? The God who's always been, is, and forever will be with that power. In John 13, that God had taken on flesh, lived in that flesh for 33 and a half years. And on the night before he would go to a cross, he would look around at all of his disciples, even one that had already sold him out and is going to betray him. And he would look at their feet, and no one had washed their feet. There was no servant in that house. And he took the position of a servant, and he washed their With all of that power. And then he would say to, to Peter, in essence, Peter didn't want him to wash his feet. Look, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. This is what, this is what I'm about. Freedom from the flesh and its demands that I'm going to live in this world and everybody better bow to me and serve me. You talk about power. Grace played out, loving others, forgiving others, serving others. Lance, why are you building up grace? Because we're going to get to this man, Saul, and you're going to remember how, can I use a surf word, how gnarly he was. <laughs> Just, he's a rotten guy. There's like bottom feeders, and he's like below them. And then, because he met Jesus, and Jesus mercied him and graced him, he becomes a man that forgives. He becomes a man that loves. And he becomes a man that serves the rest of his life. God's grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and just to be able to walk into a room 
Not a lot of rooms like this these days where men and women are gathering from all different just courses of life, carrying Bibles, making Jesus the audience of one, worshiping him, opening up the living and errant, eternal, inspired word, and allowing your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. We thank you for this room and this day and the work that you've done in our hearts. And if there's anyone here, Father, that needs to be mercied, needs, needs grace, needs forgiveness, needs salvation, as they cry out to you right now. And if that's you, just in your heart or out loud, just say, Father, that's me. Here, online, just be open and real and say, that's me. I am that sinner that needs salvation, that needs forgiveness. I need your love. I need your salvation. Please save me. Just, just share your heart with, with God right now and ask Jesus to come into your life. Ask him to fill you with his spirit. And as we are living in these days, Lord, and they are bizarre. May we, may we take away from this chapter, the early church, how you worked in spreading out the gospel. These words we just considered this morning, just that they just went out sharing the gospel. Hmm. We, we had this word cowardly. None of us want to be that. We saw how the, the apostles held their ground in Jerusalem. Faith conquering fear. Lord, how we need these, these reminders and these scriptures today to be leading and guiding our next step, our next decision, forming who we are. Holy Spirit, continue to use the word of God to form who we are what we say, and what we do. To your glory, we pray these things. We sense you're coming back soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.